Okay, okay, and welcome, welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns, and we are here another week to talk to some fantastic people, not person, but I've got two wonderful people who I've known for quite some time. One of them has been on the podcast before, another hasn't, so welcome to the one who hasn't. (laughs) But okay, who are these people I'm talking about? My bad, I'm just rambling on. So um, I'd like to um, have you all introduce yourself, and I will say that the fantastic folks here today are Dr. Jonathan Edwards and Rita Pronice. So I'll go with Dr. J, Dr. Jonathan Edwards. Would you like to introduce yourself briefly? Yes, certainly. Um, My name is Jonathan Edwards, and I'm really happy to be here uh, to talk about the book that we recently released, What It Takes Wisdom of Peer Support Specialists and Supervisors. And I'm here with an esteemed colleague who will introduce herself. Well, thank you, Jonathan. And I'm Rita Cronice, and I am excited to be here and really thankful that you're willing to let us share about the book because it's an exciting project. I think there's a lot that we're going to be able to do with the book and help the book will help to really inform the field about peer support. I can tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a faculty at Rutgers University, and I'm very familiar with the National Association of Peer Supporters, or NAPS. I was very close to the founder, Steve Harrington, and for a time after he had a stroke, I stepped up to the position of um, director. And then I moved on to to Rutgers to work with the Academy of Peer Services, which in New York State is the certification training um, organization. Okay, so we have some esteemed panelists here because they have edited a very important and timely book about peer support. So I want to start off maybe at the very beginning, not the beginning, beginning, but at least a little bit about the book. So what was the genesis of deciding to do a a whole book? And it's not a little skimpy book. I don't know how many pages I'm going to look down and see how many pages. Uh, It's a big book about uh, peer support and peer support supervision. Sort of what was the genesis of this work? So Jonathan and I are part of a workforce work group that has been working with um, elements of the National Association of Peer Supporters for quite a while. Back in 2013, I was part of the original group that developed the National Practice Guidelines. Those were revisited in 2018 and 2019 to include supervision, the role of supervisors in those practice guidelines. And after we finished the practice guidelines, we went on to do supervision learning collaborative. And then beyond the supervision learning collaborative, we were looking for what's the next big thing that we can do that can can help the workforce. And (laughs) we were talking about a lot of different things, but the book kind of came to mind. And one of us, I don't remember exactly who it was, but they had we had the bright idea of saying, well, hey, you know, the National Association of Peer Supporters has had national conferences going back for 17 years. You know, what if we took the last five years of the conference presentations, asked the presenters to give a summary of what their presentation was about, and we put it in a book. So that's essentially what we did. So it really is a compilation of really the wisdom of practitioners who had their feet on the street doing this work for many, many years. And that's how the book came about. Wow. So as you're kind of unpacking that, the first thing I think about is how maybe the field, the nation, we'll we'll talk about the U.S. nation right now, but the the nation may not know this rich history. I mean, there's some places where they think peer support just started yesterday. 
you know, oh, we have like in California, SB 803, that's just brand new. SB 803 is our California State Medicaid Peer Certification Process Bill Act. But you you said we've been doing this for 17 years. And of course, you know, things go beyond NAPS, the National Association of Peer Supporters. But the idea, like we're talking about this rich history, and I'm just so kind of moved by that. So I'm also thinking about as we're, we've been writing these documents and doing research and having conferences and having all this information, who's the audience for the book? So the audience, the target audience for the book includes supervisors of peer support workers. And we're really hoping that those are individuals who seek to improve their practice of supervision through peer-informed approaches to collaborative supervision across the spectrum of workplace settings and recent innovations. The book is also for peer supporters doing the actual work as a way to reflect the richness and the breadth of what they do on a daily basis. The other audience for the book would include people who are in hiring capacities, human resources. Um, As you said, this goes far beyond NAPS, but much of the world, um, particularly in behavioral health, is still not aware that peer support has become a discrete discipline um, and it has a very rich history. And so I think there can be a lot of consumers, if you will, uh, of the knowledge and content in the book and also um, for ourselves and in academia. I am on faculty at Columbia University and I have the privilege of working with uh, many students who uh, are trying to be open and to learn about different ways of engagement. And it's really nice to have something to substantiate the line that I'll insert here and there that I've done a lot of work in peer support services and organized peer support. So the book really validates something that we've been talking about for a really long time, both within and outside the academy. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and by the way, the, the book is about 435 pages. Not that that should scare anyone because you don't need to read it from beginning to end per se. You can pick what you need and read as you like, but that does say that it's comprehensive. And as you were both talking, you know, I was also thinking about, you know, in my work, I speak a lot to policy folks, to legislators, and many times they want to know more about peer support and how to think about peer support and things related to, for example, 988 and crisis system reform. And so um, if I'm talking about the role of peers, I can now point to that book as a resource for them. For our behavioral health director, you know, I sent them the link and said, hey, by the way, have you seen this book? Because, um, you know, it is a piece of education for people who are thinking about um, implementing peer support, advancing peer support. And the critical part is the supervision part. I think that part has not always been as connected, um, except when we started with the national practice guidelines and added peer supervision as part of the guidelines. But this is much broader than that. So now I've even talked a little bit about, but why is the book needed? Why is this book needed? Who needs this book? Well, Karis, I'm so glad that you mentioned, you know, talking to policymakers and talking to behavioral health. I'm currently the co-director of a project called PeerTech, which is Peer Support Services Technical Assistance Center. 
And our particular um, focus is on bringing into clinics because clinical settings now are bringing peer support services in for the very first time. And in clinical settings, they just really don't necessarily understand the value of peer support services or what peer supporters do, what our, what our practice guidelines are and our values are. So this book is a really good way of helping them to see from practitioners who have been doing this for a while, the benefits of peer support services and why it's so important to do it in a way that honors the mutual self-help empowerment model that peer support brings. So that's that's one of the reasons that the book is really needed in, in many of these locations where peers are coming in for the very first time to provide services that are just not quite understood. We contend that there is no other known text of this kind. You know, there's a lot out there. There are a lot of presentations. One of the projects that we did with the NAPS Workforce and Supervision Committee about five years ago as we compiled uh, supervision resources. And we've been able to um, include a repository on the NAPS website. But in terms of a comprehensive guide, uh, this is really an invaluable resource, I might say myself, for peer specialists, by peer specialists. In terms of the book, aside from practice, uh, we have a great overview of recovery, history of peer support, peer support values and standards. We have a piece on the arts, of course, supervision, and inclusion in behavioral health and special interests. And, and I will say that the the other place that the, the book has been super helpful is when I'm talking to licensed providers, like when I'm doing quote unquote grand rounds, <laughs> being able to actually like show a cover of the book and a link to the book. It, it's kind of like eye-opening. It's it's like this brand new day for them. It's like, wait, what? Y'all have a book? <laughs> it's like, yes, we have a book. Thank you very much. Um, all right. So here's some of the things that I want to know about the history of peer support. Um, so can you talk a little bit, um, Rita, maybe about the history of peer support and the inception and development of NEPS? Yeah, I can sort of go back a little bit. And some of this is in the book because we do have a chapter on the history. And Gail Bluebird is one of the most amazing historians. So she has contributed a lot to the book, but she goes back and talks about the consumer survivor movement and the freedom fighters who were doing a lot of work in the, the whole survivor movement and the Mental Patients Liberation Alliance and really fighting for the rights of people who were having their rights completely obliterated by the mental health system. And we really wanna honor and absolutely respect the survivors as well as the consumers because there was a split, a schism at one time between the people who felt that they had been more harmed by the system than helped and the others that felt that they had been helped by the system and wanted to go back to the system and be able to help reform the system. So there were the consumers and there were the survivors and eventually they did come together and have sort of an uncomfortable meeting of the minds. But the people who had survived the system were never quite comfortable with the idea of going back into the system to provide services. So that is kind of a little bit of the historical backdrop of the consumers and survivors. Enter Steve Harrington, who was my mentor, and he was the founder of the National Association of Peer Supporters. And he had also been the president of the um, Assertive Community Treatment Team Association. So he was president of the ACT team. Now, ACT is a model that is very much in with the medical model, and but it includes peer support. So he sort of brought the ACT mentality to the initial establishment of the National Association of Peer Specialists or peer, yeah, peer Specialists at that time. 
And I ended up meeting him a couple of years after the start of NAPS. And he started the organization in 2004 with a number of peer specialists that were doing mostly case management style work in the state of Michigan. And I had taken intentional peer support training. So I came from the perspective of really what is peer support is really all about relationship. It's a relational kind of um, approach. So when he and I had a lot of conversations about where NAPS was going after I came on board, I think that was like around 2008, 2009, the organization took sort of a turn towards the relational aspects of, of peer support. Steve had always really seen that and he had really always promoted that, but it really took a lot more of a direction in that and towards relational peer support. Steve was really a Renaissance man. He was a social scientist. He was a journalist. He was a lawyer. <laughs> he, had, he had a lot of different you know, interests and opportunities to express those interests. He also was a fellow at Boston University in the Psychiatric Rehabilitation Center. Um, and he had done a lot of work with understanding the peer support workforce. He had done surveys of the workforce. He had done a newsletter for the workforce. He had really tried to bring the workforce together back in a time before anybody else was really looking at how to do that or doing it. And he really did that back in the very beginning. He also started a peer support conference, a national conference for peer, peer specialists. And that started in 2007. And from 2007 to even current day, they're still doing a national conference. And that's sort of how the book, the genesis of the book started was with all of the people that had given presentations at the national conference, we reached out to them and they contributed to the book. Just a little footnote, Steve had a stroke in 2015. And at that time, I kind of took over for a short time. And then I went on to, to a position at Rutgers. And I've always held the interest in NAPS. I've always wanted to support NAPS. And one of the interesting aspects of the book is that none of us who had co-edited the book are taking any kind of contribution for that. Everything that any kind of profit is going right back to NAPS so that it's a fundraiser for the organization. Yeah, amazing, amazing. If if we could have go down memory lane for a half a second here. You know, the first time I met Steve was actually at the World Federation Mental Health Congress in Greece. There was a group of people that were funded by by SAMHSA and, um, and they were regional representatives and I was one of the regional representatives and we knew each other's names and maybe other people knew people, but I was sort of new on the scene. And I was in one of these little uh workshops. And it was supposed to be a workshop about peer support by some people from California, of all places where I happened to be, and they didn't show up. And so here's Steve. Steve and I had already talked. We connected a little bit. And, you know, Steve got up and he's like, okay, well, we're just going to run the workshop. And he just got up and ran this workshop. And I'm kind of in the back going, yeah, uh-huh, amen, that's right, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of like backing him up with the kind of like, yes, that, yes, this, yes, I agree kind of thing. And then um, I had this Barbie doll, um, my advocacy Barbie, and he had a chicken. He had this, <laughs> this thing was this rubber chicken. And I still have this picture of um, Barbie and the chicken together. But that and that represents me and Steve meeting um, in, in Greece. And we befriended each other since then. And he was so helpful also in supporting me when I became the executive director, then CEO of Project Return Peer Support Network. You know, we did a lot of collaborative work together and he uh, mentored so many of us, right? So um, thank you for that for that history. Um, okay, Jonathan, you, you have a Steve story. You can you can share a Steve story. 
Well, I can say that I'm um, grateful that I met Steve very briefly at my first NAPS conference, which was in Philadelphia in 2016. Um, and, you know, they always say quality over quantity, because I feel like I knew Steve certainly not nearly as well as both of you or many others, but he certainly made an impression on me. And I know that he was really behind trying to mobilize diversity at the conference. In fact, I remember that year through some various mechanisms, um, I did see many people who looked like me at the conference. And I, you know, I've been to several NAPS conferences. I sat on the board for four years, so altogether I've probably been to five. But I would say that when I attended my first conference in Philadelphia, I probably saw more people of color than all the other years that I've been at the conference combined times two. So we've had our sort of, we've, we've talked about the history. Uh, we, we've talked about uh, Steve and, you know, all these um, things that start to put together a picture for people about, I think, you know, this is, this is bigger than you and, you know, Rita, myself, it's, it's huge. So when we, when we think about this, then what is the impact of like certification and supervision of the peer workforce? So, Several things. You know, we'll just start out by going back to 2007 with the uh, CMS guidance to the states on Medicaid reimbursement. And as we know, that led to a lot of complexities which still exist in implementing peer support. You know, we know that while recognizing the need for reliable supervision, this model defaulted to clinical models of supervision. You know, and this continues to perpetuate a watering down, a dilution, as Rita puts it. Uh, she does a great demonstration of, of wine goblets and pouring water into wine and vinegar to sour it. And those are, those are vividly metaphorical of what happens in the peer support workforce. So with the watering down, um, peer support is oftentimes given oversight by non-peer supervisors. That's another bone of contention. You know, and then we move into the piece around um, looking at colonialism that whole idea of something being taken over, something being co-opted. And so the colonialism that we see in the system really represents a usurpation and a co-optation of native peer support. We see a commodification of peer support. We see it being tailored to the needs and the comforts of the existing workforce. And once again, it leads to that dilution and erasure of the core values of peer support and the complexities in the workforce. And I think what I would add to that is the idea that what's happening in the system now is largely based on back in 2007, CMS you know, decided that peer support was an evidence-based practice. But going back many more years to the 70s, 80s, 90s, the peer-run organizations have been doing pure peer support of mutual health. That's the core business of those organizations is to provide pure peer support. And so the more that we can stick close to the peer-run organizations who kept those values pure, who have been keeping those practices alive, and start to bring those practices into some of the more clinical settings and help them to see there really is a value, a difference in, in quality of peer support between a peer support that's been co-opted by a system based on what the system needs are versus peer support that's being provided as the pure peer business you know, the business model for this is what we do as our core value and our core mission. 
So I think that's something that we really need to keep pushing and keep alive is that the peer-run organizations need to stay strong and we need to help them in any way that we can. Okay, so we, we've talked a little bit about some of the um, some of the things that are coming up and like, is there anything that's that's missing? You know, as you as you you talked a little bit, um, Jonathan. I think about the colonization and co-optation uh, by the system of peer support and kind of discovering that, like we we knew it all along, but how is that covered in the book? And are there other things missing, like um, maybe equity um, for particular communities, and what does that look like in peer support in the peer support world? Yeah. So, what what are some things that are that are missing? I can speak to the idea that as we were doing the book, none of us really, it never really dawned on us until there's one point where we recognized that we did not have a lot of authors or contributors that were people of color. And then we started tracing back, you know, through the years, NAPS has never really paid attention to people of color. We've had a lot of people of color coming to the conferences, but our membership has, has been largely white. And the people that have been contributing to the conferences have often been largely white. And we never even thought to look at the demographics of who was coming until recently. And we're much more aware now. I know there was a time when I was on the board of directors for NAPS and I stepped off just to make room for people of color to come onto the board because there there was just a desperate need for us to have more equity across the board on the board. One of the things that I wanted to jump immediately to is to say, I think we need another book. But before that book, I think there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of sourcing, a lot of intentionality around reaching the pockets and the communities of Black people, other people of color who are doing peer support work, who uh, oftentimes are invisibilized through the system, who don't have the white skin privilege to even move past the stigma that all peer support workers are going to be subject to. So it's sort of that intersection of, you know, being a person of color and being in a stigmatized workforce category, and you're just sort of toiling away um, without any inclusion, recognition, any voice at the table. Um, And so I think there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that we're reaching other communities. Um, and to learn about their experiences and their viewpoints. And, and I think that's how we're going to get our next book. It would be great if we can just go ahead and write it, but we don't, we don't have the information. We don't have the narratives. And I think we're very, very clear about that. And I think that's going to fuel our burning desire even more to really think about how to approach this. I don't want to say remedy it, but because it's not an it but we really do need to move forward and bring in those voices. I think, you know, in any of the research that we discuss uh, in our small work group, we find that, you know, most of the demographic distribution tends to be, you know, um, 70, 70, low 70% uh, of white females uh, in a lot of the, in a lot of the research. So you can certainly see how, you know, the sampling is revealing you know, um, who's being reached, you know, um, who has access to share their experience. Yeah. I mean, certainly that was part of the genesis of this podcast, right? Is to be able to figure out how to lift up and share the the work and voices and experiences, primarily of people of color with lived experience. And of course, all the intersections there within. And it's so funny, I was thinking now of a uh, 
Cheryl Bellamy and how she said that she met me at, at an NAPS conference. And, and I had never, I, I had never heard this story till we talked on the podcast. She said, um, uh, she like slapped Larry Davidson on the arm and said, why did you tell me she was black? And, and Larry was like, but I thought you knew she was black. No, I didn't know. Don't you think you should have like told me that? It was like so hilarious, right? And just in case people have not listened to that podcast, Sherelle is black. So it's okay for her to be slapping Larry and saying, why did you tell me, you know, but um, because we're, we're looking for ourselves, we're looking for that representation. And in, in the policy work that I've been doing, especially um, when legislators want to advance peer support, for example, um, in um, advancing peer support in Medicare, not just Medicaid, one of the questions they're asking is what are the demographics of peer supporters look like? Uh, because they're looking for the demographics to mirror the communities that tend to be unserved, underserved, or inappropriately served with peers who look like them or speak their same language. So I think this is really such an opportunity, you know, um, Jonathan, as you're talking about thinking with intentionality about what's the next step for the next book to talk about and, and address these issues from both research. And, and I think, you know, um, even storytelling is powerful. You know, I think that's a form of research, of course. Uh, so um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what that would look like. Are there any other areas that, um, you know, you can think of about anything that's missing? I, I can't think of any, but, you know, did I miss anything? <laughs> I'm thinking in terms of getting people to join NAPS, you know, if we can get people of color, really get a lot of people of color joining NAPS, and that's the base for our next book right there. So if we can get a lot of people to join, that would be really helpful. Just the scope of what, not just, um, the scope of what um, peer support workers um, tend to focus on. One of the conversations Rita and I had is that, you know, there's so many other factors, and for example, the social determinants of health that, you know, really uh, bear down on uh, a person's success or lack thereof. And, you know, just sort of broadening the literacy of peer support work. It's difficult with clinicians to get them to see um, how other factors other than what goes on in the treatment setting impact people who are presenting for service. And I think that's that is one common area where I think we can all stand to look at the totality of a person rather than, you know, you know what their diagnosis was or what they don't have, um, but where they live and what they eat and the information that they have access to and the health care that they do or don't have access to and the choices. And so I think it's really important to kind of broaden the scope outside of, well, what goes on in what we know as the treatment setting or, you know, what is our focus on lack or on medicalized concepts. So I think that's really missing. Okay. All right. Great. So, and, and I'll add two other things that I was thinking about in California, which we were able to kind of add into the scope of work. Well, probably core competencies, I think is better in the training, but also in the work that peers would be doing because times change. And so with the um, advent of and the advancement of technology and use of technology and integration of technology within health and mental health, whether it be telehealth or digital therapeutics, you know, we, we were finding that people did not have access to those pieces of technology. And when they did, 
Some of them didn't know how to use it. So you could give the person the technology to participate in telehealth, but they couldn't participate in telehealth because they didn't know how to use the technology. And here's something that's so, so we added digital um, health literacy as one of the core competencies and helping peers support other people if they wanted to use technology, telehealth apps, et cetera, in being able to make decisions about how to do that, to do it in ways that are, that they feel comfortable, that they feel that they're protected, um, et cetera, like how to think about leaving a digital footprint. So those are some of the things that, you know, we didn't have to think about that in the 70s, right? But we do have to think about that today. Um, and, you know, what was really interesting about that kind of process was, uh, at least for us here in LA, was um, clinicians being able to actually see peers in a very different way. The clinicians didn't know how to use the technology. So who helped them? the peers. And so, and they kept saying, oh, the peers can't do that. Well, they're not going to know. Well, how are they going to teach them how to download an app? It's like, do you know how to download the app? Do you know how to like, um, you know, troubleshoot when somebody is struggling with downloading the app or using the telehealth? And, um, you know, so that was the peers who actually taught the um, telehealth clinic clinicians how to use the technology. So what it did is it, it actually reduced a lot of stigma around the role of the peer. And they saw the peer not only as a support person to the, the, the person that they were helping, but they also saw the peer as a teacher to them, which was really kind of cool and, and different. But anyway, um, I don't know if that went off sides or not, but I, th I thought it was something you know really interesting when we're thinking about future of, of peer support, where else might we, might we be helping people that we weren't traditionally supporting them in the past? So, Oh, before we wrap up, I do want you all to shout out the other editors of the book. So you all are two and there are two more. So would you like to tell the audience who the other two editors are to make sure that they've got their credit? Yes, we have Dr. Joanne Forbes um, and we have uh, Gita Enders and Gita is the Director of Mental Health Services at uh, New York City Health and Hospitals. She was recently promoted to that title from Director of Peer Support Services. And so the four of us are a dynamic quartet and uh, we, we just continue to do a lot of work together. And uh, we're very proud to have each other and to have this collaboration. Fantastic, a symphonic group. Okay, so when we wrap up, I do this thing, we've been doing it throughout the whole conversation, a lot of wisdom dropping tons of tons of information and wisdom. But before we wrap up, I do like to want to give each of you an opportunity to do that one piece of wisdom dropping about maybe something that you want listeners to do or listeners to think about. So I will leave it up to you each to um, provide your last piece of wisdom for the listeners. I think just if you pick up the book, there's so many different pieces of the book that are important but I really love at the very beginning, there's the history of the movement of the peer consumer survivor movement. And then it goes all the way through to the end of the book where it talks about the art arts movement. Both of those are written by Gail Bluebird, who I just adore because she's been kind of a mother of the movement all the way through, but she really talks about arts and creative expression as an important part of something that peer supporters should be doing. And I really believe that's true. So I would carry you know, that theme from beginning to end that she offers. 
And I would encourage people to just think about the basic idea of helping someone unconditionally, helping, supporting, receiving support, opening oneself to support, and that that idea is universal. And it's it's been here since the beginning of time. And one of the things that we didn't say is that, you know, this organized peer support workforce is actually counterintuitive to the origins of natural peer support, which was non-monetized and non-hierarchical. Nonetheless, we have a wonderful way of engaging people that's been systematized, but I think we need to take that back a little bit so that we are in the system, but not of the system. And so just thinking about supporting and being supported, being open to support, that that's something I think everyone can identify with whether or not they disclose it. And, uh, you know, when we look at it that way, I think we can begin to plant common seeds. Fantastic. So I want to thank both of you for um, joining the podcast and having this wonderfully rich discussion. If I had a piece of wisdom to drop, get the book. I mean, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that as a podcast host because <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't do, I don't do sponsorships in that way. But, but to, but honestly, I think you know, you know, check out the book, uh, get as much information as possible, check out NAPS. These resources are out here for you. You really want folks to take advantage of these resources. The other thing, of course, that I have to say at the end, according to my producer, is. Like, share, comment, like, share, comment. Okay, I said it. So now (laughs) uh, the most, most, most important thing y'all can do is to share the podcast. There are people who would really benefit from listening to the podcast and getting access to the information. And the only way to do that is actually to share the podcast. So I want to thank Jonathan and Rita for joining me today. It's been amazing to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And for our listeners, you know where to find us next week. Same, I was going to say same bat channel. What happened? We're unicorns. (laughs) You know where to find us next week. And we look forward to seeing you next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.